Historical super fights. Welcome to this episode of Dad Bod History, where the drinks are cold and the takes are old. I'm Jake, and we got Eric tonight. Hope you guys are all doing well. Uh, before we get into our topic tonight, which is historical super fights, Eric, how was your week? Anything go on? What day is it? It is Sunday. Okay. Well, we started spring break on Friday. Oh, so you've already lost all track. Of I've time. already lost no, all that track makes of sense. time. Uh, no, I mean, it was a good week. Actually, mm-hmm. no, because I'm going to go into, I'm going to tell you about school this week because it was you do that. interesting. Um, my wife, who is one of the best teachers I've ever met. Um, you don't have to, I mean, she's, you can just say she's the best uh, She's teacher. not going to hear this, but I think okay. she's great. Um. And that's professionally speaking. She's she, incredible. She's great. But personally speaking, she's amazing as well. It's just, anyways, <laughs> before I dig this hole Noted. deeper, Check. Uh, I like my wife. I love her, in <laughs> fact. She's great. Uh, all right. Now that we've established that, she put together this thing. And again, with the help of some other teachers, but she basically was a driving force behind this thing. Um, she, she was doing some reading, some research. She was listening to students. She does a lot of awesome stuff. One of the things she does, she does like student speeches and student Ted talks. She has them give Ted talks Mm -hmm. and students, this must've been in January said, you know, uh, students need to have ways to like learn about mental health and learn about mental wellness. And we need days where we can like have some pressure taken off. And at first I heard that and my immediate thought was, no, no, grab those boots by the bootstraps and fight through and just have some grit. And yeah. that, that that's not untrue. But what was being said was all we feel is pressure. And again, that's, that is what it is. So she spent, the better part of the last two months putting together we ha- we were trying to figure out what we'd call it but it ended up being called a wellness day for junior high and you know it was like a mental health day and i was like no we don't like yeah there's there might be some issues but i don't it's hard to label it's just called a wellness day and so we actually did some research with a with some videos that we front loaded for the kids and so we kind of surprised them the the jig was up like 30 seconds into the day. Cause I was handing out wristbands for their groups. And we're just like, Oh no, this is just for small groups. We're going to do a game. Like, no, this is our wellness day. This is it. Isn't it? And so well, now you're not going to get one. Yeah. it's yeah. <laughs> So we just didn't have classes all day. Good. Started with a breakfast um, with the whole junior high. And then we had them go through sessions on things like managing intense emotions uh, you know, understanding feelings, understanding thoughts, uh, understanding relaxation. And so they went to these different sessions where there was like some of that instruction and then like an activity. Sure. So mine was managing intense emotions because I'm so good at that. Oh yeah. One of the best I've ever seen. <laughs> and so I, I put on an escape room, uh, for the kids. Okay. So I'm just, you know, I had a few moments where I was some teaching moments, but it's kind of like we, you have a time limit and you have some pressure on you. So this is, this is the thing. How do you get, how are you going to manage these? And then the kids had lunch and we, so we provided lunch for them. And then 
the the last hour of the day after lunch, we just said, hey, it's it's recess. Go play. The teachers are going to be there. We're going to play. Like, just take the load off. Just do this. So that was really fantastic on Wednesday. Thursday, kids started to disappear. Friday, I was missing six, seven, eight, nine. It started with six. Seven, eight, nine left. You just kept losing kids. Yeah, because they were leaving early to go to vacation. Uh, I lost a student on Thursday. She was going to Italy, lost another one on Friday. She was going to Spain. Other kids are like, well, I'm going to New York. I'm going to Dubai. Like that's the kind of students we have. They they travel a lot. And that's fine. That's awesome. Um, when I got to my eighth grade PE classes in the afternoon on Friday, half the class was gone. Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of a weird week. Um, it is Sunday yesterday morning. I tore up my backyard with a rototiller, you know, mixed in some, some redwood, uh, soil, and then added a bunch of calcium sulfate to change the pH of the ground. Cause we're getting ready to lay seed. And then I did some more of that work this morning and yeah, that's that's what, what's going on. That's uh that's really good, man. And and I just want to go back to the wellness day. I think that's so interesting that you you did that because or that Amy, your wife, set it up because it's like um you know, a lot of previous generations will talk about when they were kids or when they were in school, um, and say, Well, you know back when I was in school, this is how it was. And it was tougher, I guess. And it's like, well, certain aspects of life were tougher back then for sure. But that, and then they like to like disparage kids in this generation and say, well, you're soft and you have everything so easy. And it's like kids today have a whole universe of situations that are entirely different than anything you could have possibly have known as a child. And they need to learn how to manage that. And not to say that, you know, my father or your father or our grandparents didn't have their own difficulties growing up. They absolutely did. But they're, they don't, they're in literally different time periods. And to try to conflate one with others is almost impossible. And like anything, mental health and wellness are skills that need to be practiced. Um, and so I think it's really cool that that's something that your school is, um, you know, and probably behind you and your wife spearheading it is making a priority because I think it's so important for kids to be able to say and to feel comfortable saying, I need a break um, and, and to be okay at knowing what their limits and boundaries are. Because it, it's, you know, if we want to prepare students for the real world, whatever that is, uh, the students be, need to be able to assess their own mental and physical well-being and protect that. So, yeah, I mean, we can, we can we can get to the really dark part of it, and just we know that like suicide rates are on the rise among teenagers. So, like, we we need to do something. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. yeah. Back in my my parents' day, yeah, they had to walk to school and you know, it wasn't easy and they didn't have nearly the, the creature comforts that we have today. 
They also, once they left school, unless they got on the rotary phone to call one of their friends, if there was a phone in the house, because uh, both my parents are from small towns, from the moment they left school until the moment that they got to school the next day, they didn't have constant contact and messaging from everyone that they knew. Yeah. And they didn't have the pressure of trying to keep up with whatever the standard was that everyone needed to, to be or do or to, to appear. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that didn't exist. And I mean, outside of school sports, the other yeah. activities were like 4-H. And it yeah, once you once you left school, largely that was you were done with school for the day. Now you had homework, but I would wager the kids today have, and it's a problem with with homework and how it's done because it's it can be hours of homework added to hours of extracurriculars, and it's like you got to let the kid be a kid, and you can't do that if you're constantly just piling on more stuff. Well, even so, you you say that. What does that mean? What does it mean for a kid to be a kid? Because that doesn't mean what it meant in the 80s or 90s or 60s. That's a great point. That's a great point. If I was to say my kids come home, we live, you know, in in a, you know, a neighborhood. Um, We will have a park across the street at some point in the future, whenever the city gets around to it. But my kids are going to come home and they're going to be a kid. Well, naturally that's one of two things. They're jumping on a computer or an iPad or they're going out back and throwing dirt at each other. Those are the options they have because they're not wandering around the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, You know, and maybe we should take more effort to, to make that happen to say, Hey, grab your bike, go around the block. Um, but there's not many places for them to go. Like, and that comes down to city design, right? Like our cities were designed because the automobile took over. Like, well, let's design the neighborhoods for cars. And that's what they did. You know, every neighborhood is designed for cars. Unless you live in a city, then the city is designed for, for you know, like a big city is designed for pedestrian transportation or, or you know, you walk places or you bike places. Like I can't get anything without driving a car Mm -hmm. and my kids could ride their bikes, but there's nowhere for them to go. Really. We're within biking distance of school, but so what does it mean to be a kid? Cause when my dad got home, he had chores because he lived on a farm. Sure. And, and they're, yeah, he probably screwed around in the barn. They did stupid, crazy stuff. You know, but being a kid, it always, every time I see these Facebook posts, and I'm not on Facebook that much, um, you know, like, when I was a kid, this is how we, it's like, yeah, when you were a kid, you were living in a society that was built by your parents and grandparents. The kids today are living in the society that you, the one who is complaining, literally built. Your generation built this. This is how it is. Mm -hmm. 
it's not that these kids are soft. It's not that they are making terrible choices. They are in an environment that is promoting certain things. And that was built by the generation or two before them. And and like, oh, these kids act this way. Who raised them? (laughs) And they're your kids. Your kids. Like, what, what did you do to make this so so much better. Well, well you didn't it, do anything. No, that's a great point. And it's interesting because you said, well, what is that, you know, letting a kid be a kid? And I would say in real broad strokes that child, children, kids need an outlet to explore whatever interests them outside of school and outside of, you know, doing whatever their home responsibilities are. And, and the outlet changes, you know, when, when I was a kid, my outlet was, I would watch cartoons when I got home, I had a Nintendo in my bedroom that I would play sometimes. And otherwise I'd go on my bike and go play with my friends in the neighborhood. Those are my outlets for my, my daughter and my son, my son's only five, but my daughter, she loves Minecraft. So that's one of her outlets and she loves playing with her cousin, which is great. Um, another one is obviously she likes watching Um, things on Netflix, some videos on YouTube, we'll let her watch. And then, you know, we try to make sure that they go outside and play, Um, you know, and, and those are the outlets. So the outlets changed, they're different, but they still need them. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what I mean by letting a kid be a kid is like, we got to let them explore who they are outside of the constrained structures that they operate in, you know, at school or at home. And, Um, and so isn't that another good uh, commentary, right? Like the constrained structures. I'm a teacher. I love what I do. Mm-hmm. I like to play with those structures because a, I think the school has this keystone position within society. Yeah. Like absolutely. If, that's, if that's good and stable, then you can build a lot of great stuff on it. But if it's out of date, <laughs> if it's out of code, and by code, I, you know, like you can't build with something that's out of code because you're not supposed to. But like if if the school is out of date, if you're doing stuff just because that's the way it's always been done. Are we making them any better? Because yeah, the basic structures of our schools, uh, private, public and otherwise, are all still functioning on 1950s and 1960s yeah. systems, which was great in the 50s and 60s. And there's there's but things about that it world. that that are that are good because you need to have certain things. Um, I don't want to get too preachy about core knowledge. <laughs> I still think it's it's one of the best. Okay. I think I think there's classical models that I, I there's parts of it that I really appreciate. Um, I have a friend who visited a classical school a few weeks ago, and he was telling me about it. And, you know, there's no Chromebooks. There's no devices. You don't, history is not taught as history. Well, no, I I don't remember if that was the case. I remember one of the schools that we taught near, um, when we taught together, uh, Tempe Prep and the Great Hearts Academies, they don't have a history class. They have American letters. They're reading the primary sources from these time periods and then discussing around it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's no Chromebooks in sight, right? Like, Sure. Because even my students, um, almost automatically and almost a Twitch-like, will grab their Chromebook before anything else. 
Cause yeah. they know we might use it and there's some great tools we have, but then when we're doing something else, they just have it open. I'm like, can, can you close that? And they're like, uh, I can quit anytime like, I want to. I just don't want yeah. to. And it, it's, it's, I remember when we came back from distance learning, cause we did our distance learning at the end of the school year in 2020. And then we started back up in 2020 in August, we were, we were, uh, off campus until like October ish. Yeah. So when kids came back on campus, I was almost militant in we're not using the Chromebooks. We're doing things on with pencil and paper and sure. doing written work. And that was more of a reaction rather than, hey, I want you to be able to do this and write well. Those are things I want to try to focus on. And then you know, allow the conversations to happen. Well, and it, it's interesting because I've been out of the game, so to speak, for going on nine years now. But it, it, when I was teaching, and since I've left, I you know, I still, I still follow obviously you and and your wife and and the teaching world and the friends that I have in it. And when I was teaching. I pretty quickly went from this idea that teaching is, you know, students need to know these things like, you know, uh, when was the Declaration of Independence signed, for example, when was, the, you know, July 4th, 1776, they need to know that thing. And I, I quickly went from that idea where they need to know this content, know this stuff to they need to have these skills because we live in a world where they're going to be inundated with literally limitless knowledge from yeah. all fields, you know, math, science, history, arts, and anything that you can possibly imagine, limitless knowledge. So they don't really need to know the knowledge because the knowledge is there. They need to learn how to discern the knowledge and use it. And they need to develop the skills to process that knowledge. And, and so in my pie in the sky idea of what education should be is not so much this classical idea Although there's some classical schools that do great or traditional schools that have some really great programs. This idea that you need to know these things is, is that you need to know how to process these things mm -hmm. and know how to deal with it. And that's why I think the scientific method, you know, in science class is so valuable because it teaches you. I have a question. I think this is the answer. I need to test that answer. I need to observe my results and I need to reform or form my conclusions and then possibly test it all over again. And you can apply that to historical study. Yeah. Um, when, when doing history, you're, you're, you start with a question and you work towards an answer. Not, I have an answer. I'm going to go find information that can back up my answer, which is how 99% of online debate goes. Yeah. And I would say, Oh man, I, I would, this is what I know to be true. This is what I know works and, and it's worthwhile. Mm -hmm. I also know that there's no way I get anything. I don't get to everything that we need to. At the same time, uh, the, the idea of saying, this is a good start. Let's see where you can go from here. Sure. Um, because like you said, like science, uh, the scientific method, how amazing would it be to drop the science fair projects and just do the scientific method for the rest of it. Like, that's just what you do. 
Yeah. Right. In, instead of saying you have one big science fair project that everybody hates. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody. Mom, dad, teacher, students. The teacher hates it. Yep. The students hate it. The parents hate it. The judges get free lunch, but that's about it. Like nobody, the other teachers who have to put up with a day where students get pulled, nobody enjoys this. Yeah. Well, it's Except interesting. Except for the students that are like totally into it. Yeah. It's awesome. But what if you did the scientific method from the very beginning of the school year? Like, Which is how it should be. Right. That's And, and it's so interesting staying on that thread of science and you can apply this to all subjects, literally all subjects, but with science specifically, the beauty of it is if you do the scientific method, right. And you say, I think X, you know, I have a question and I think X is the answer. I test it. I make my observations. Oops. I was wrong. And X is not the answer. It's actually Y it's this thing that I didn't think of. And a lot of people were so conditioned to say, well, I, I was wrong, so I guess I failed. It's like, no, you didn't fail. You learned. That's what happened. You yeah. did the scientific method correctly, and you found out what you thought was true is not true, but something else is true. You learned. That's the whole point. This is my, 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 the theory I have in my heart about math. Because I have students that are like, will we'll check their work in the morning. I think they, they, they they look at the answers in the morning for the work they had the night before. They check it. And, and you know, it's pass or fail right in the assignment. You, you turn in. That's your practice, right? Yeah. Um, they'll be like, what's the answer? It doesn't <laughs> matter. It doesn't matter what the answer is. Did I get this how right? Are you, how are you getting there? Yeah. What's, what's your process? Well, that's really hard the way they do it. Well, but that's how they, that's how they get it right. Like, if you want to get it right without looking at the answer book, mm-hmm. you have to do the work and, and there's a process. And you literally have to trust the process. Yes. It's like, here's what you do. Well, I don't know how to do that. Then you need to practice it until you do, because yeah. otherwise you're not going to get the right answer. And at this point in the year, fourth quarter, it's it's literally infuriating because I'm like, you're not doing well on your tests. And there and there's some students that are struggling, but they're also trying. When I say struggling, they're actually like wrestling with the math and trying sure. to get the concepts down. And some might not get it all, but those that are like, eh, I don't, I don't want to do that way. I'm like, well, then you're not going to get the right answer. Yeah. Well, and I say, hey, this class is offered next year too. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, you better figure it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I there's nothing. See, and I that's like the thing. hidden. I haven't hidden anything from you all year. I'm showing you how this works. You you're have teaching to trust them. the process and, and practice this. And you're teaching them through this. And this is something my uncle taught me totally. And I said it in passing once decades ago when he went to college. He goes, in college, I learned how to learn. And it's so funny that he said it that way because it's not what I actually learned. I learned how to learn. That's something he hadn't learned in K-12 school. And I think that's so interesting is what you're saying to that student is like, I'm teaching you how to think like I am teaching you how to use your mind to benefit you. And that's, what's so hard because we're so concerned with the right answer. It's like, it's not a, well, it is, it is about the answer, but it's not just about the answer. It's about figuring out, do I have the skills to get to the answer? And I think that's something we just don't get 
on a wide scale basis across our educational system. We're so concerned with the answer that we've forgotten the process and, and the, the why. Oh, the score. Yeah. You got to have the right score. Yeah. I, I had a student, I had to, I had to excuse myself from a conversation with her because she had uh, a piece of work that she was turning into me mm-hmm. and I had a menu system, right? And yeah, they, they chose things and she's trying to turn in this, this piece of artwork about Mao Zedong. And I'm said, well, I don't, I don't think this really fits what I'm, I'm looking for. And she says, so I have to do it over. And I said, well, it's on lined paper. Like you drew this picture and it's, it's good. It's, it's good work. It's not complete. And it's on lined paper. We shouldn't be doing stuff on lined paper like this. Yeah. Just so, so how many points would I get? Hmm. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to give you any. It's not complete. Well, if I turn it in like this, how many points do I get? I'm like zero. And I said, this is not complete. And it hasn't met the criteria. I'm not going to accept it. Who is the the teacher that is some professional session we went to? And he said that he's like, this isn't ready to be turned in. Rick Morris. Was it Rick Morris? I think it was Rick Morris. He's like, this isn't ready to be turned in. It's not a matter of the answers are right or wrong. It's that you haven't put the time to do this right. And it wasn't like like anything should, but it was online paper and there's all this blank space. I said, I think you can do more. Mm -hmm. I said, well, then will I get the points? I said, I don't know. And it was all about the points, the points, the points. I'm like, I don't care. Man, I'd love to get away from the grades, right? Like, show me your best work. And if I say, this is a good first draft. Show me your second mm-hmm. draft. I'd love to see what happens next. And see, now it's, it's spring break for me, right? So mm-hmm. I have this whole week to process stuff. And I'm thinking about when I come back, what are things that I need to do a little bit different? Mm-hmm. One of those things is getting them off of the spoon-fed history or we read together, take notes together to say, hey, this is on you. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow, we're going to do a Socratic seminar. This is great. On this reading. And I, and I may have to start doing that because I meant to do that earlier in the year. It'll get them to really think about these things. Mm-hmm. We've had some good conversations in my two history classes, especially as we get to like the Holocaust and sure. the beginning of the war. World War II is what we're in now, but it's... When they have questions, those are the best moments. And that's where the real meat is. Yeah. Is when you can, when you can have that discussion and it's not that you just want to, you know, you know, sit up at the front of the class and and you think you're a modern day Socrates, but that idea that the students are now driving the discussion is so valuable. Um, And then they, they, but, and that's only one part of it. I mean, there's a whole lot else to be added to that, but it is a, Great part when you get to it, which I think is a great segue because we're going to do historical super fights. Super so fights. We're going to do. Uh, well, how was questions. your week? My, my week was good. Um, my wife and I have been. So speaking of being outside, we've been working um, on our front yard and side yard uh, all week. So whenever we had an hour or two during the day, um, we'd go out and work on it. And it's it's really coming along nice. Um, what are you doing? And, just weeding? and. So we have a side yard and the side yard when we bought the house about a year ago, it was just there was like small trees that were growing up and they were like hitting the gutters of our house. And so we chopped those down right away. But then we had all these vines and like 
dead growth on the side yard. And it was just hideous. Um, and so, yeah, we've been weeding it. We weeded all, we got all the weeds out. We raked it, um, got the roots out. There's some small bushes that we cut down that we dug most of them out. We've got a couple more to still remove. Um, but for the whole side yard, except for one spot towards the front, it's all weeded. We put down a weed berry and then we laid some really nice mulch and it just transformed the side of our house. And so then we're going to start working our way around the front of the house and we're going to do that to our whole yard um, to uh, to kind of, one, we don't want to water our front yard because we're never in the front yard and with the drought that's going on right now, it seems a bit frivolous to try to water a front lawn. Um, and so we're going to work our way across that, but that's what we've been doing. And it's been really nice. And then during that time when we're working in the yard, the kids are outside playing and um, climbing trees and all that. So it's been fun for them as well. Nice. Yeah. Nice. That's been our week. Let's get into these super fights. So super fights, hypothetical, oh. historical questions, right? That's and yeah. it's kind of a, who would you it's, rather it's a, sort of situation? Kind of. Yeah. It's a, it's a, person versus a person and then i got i i don't know i've got rules here i'm not going to follow them so Great. i can't wait i'm going to give you two people this is not a very thick list of historical people which is weird because there's been a lot of people in history yeah think they're, they're a bigger deck like everybody and i may have to pull from the original deck yeah it's not sorry so i'm going to pull them and then i'm going to pull a uh kind of like a modifier card to see who would win between these two okay and uh i'm gonna make it kind of random as i would so I would charles darwin charles darwin the hms beagle versus the knights templar jeez an entire order all right armed with a blunderbuss so who That's wins it. Yeah, do you want me to give you a location or a time period too? I mean, that helps. I I mean, if we're talking a, a fight to the to the pain, so to speak, possibly a fight to the death. I can't imagine that the Knights Templar are going to do worse Here we than Charles Darwin with a blunderbuss. They're at the Library of Alexandria while it's on fire. So okay, well, that's interesting. Who wins that that matchup? See, and you'd like to think, well, maybe Charles Darwin has got some John Wick in him and he's just like this super assassin. But if you've ever seen a photo of Charles Darwin, that's absolutely not the case. Uh, he was a naturalist, um, you know, and he discovered a bunch of finches that that's like. I just can't imagine him winning a fight against the Knights Templar in any scenario, since the Knights Templar are probably the ones that went off and set the fire in the first place. So, no, they yeah, didn't. it was was it them? Was it the Knights oh, Templar? Didn't no, the Knights Templar sack Constantinople? Yeah, but not Alexandria. No, they didn't do Alexandria. I think uh, I don't think it was Saladin, but I think it was one of the Muslim crusaders that sacked Alexandria. Did Muslims have crusaders? Well, the jihad, I guess. <laughs> that's what that's what that is. The jihad is a crusade. Yeah. Right, I know, but crusaders comes from crux, right? Yes literally can't even think of the word for that uh really picking at the words here i can tell either way called? charles darwin is not winning this fight that was too easy that was too easy okay. to start all right, all right, all right. charles darwin is going against an entire order 
of two of, of not Teutonic, but Templar Knights. All right, fine. Fun. All right. So let me, I, I've just got all these different cards. So we're just going to, I'm going to get myself set up. All right. To have some locations and different time periods. Do you want a location or a time period for this next one? A dealer's choice, whatever you think is more interesting. So we're going to be on the Oregon Trail. Perfect. And while on the Oregon Trail, they'll be leading a troop of Roman centurions. So Jack the Ripper leading a troop of Roman centurions on the Oregon Trail or Davy Crockett doing the same. I'd, so this is, one's is, almost is, too easy as well. Is, is the fight who's going to get them to Oregon, get them to the Pacific quickest, or is the fight we're actually? Yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Which of these guys is going to get Roman centurions all the way to Oregon? Well, the camp followers are going to struggle with Jack the Ripper leading the way because it's just going to be unexplained murder after unexplained murder. Uh, which literally is being decimated, <laughs> which is <laughs> ironic. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> oh, Jack. Um, versus Davy Crockett, who's literally a mountain man. Frontiersman. Yeah, I got to go. Davy Davy Crockett's going to. He's going to be able to get those Romans to to the Pacific coast quicker than Jack the Ripper. I'm not saying Jack the Ripper can't do it, but I think Davy Crockett's just got the skill set. Davy Crockett will lead them. Jack the Ripper will drive them with fear. Yeah. All right. Location or time period? Well, some of these are cut. I don't know. We'll just go with this one. We're going to go with the Great Depression. Great. Love it. And uh, it's Moctezuma the second. Montezuma, George King of Aztec. Spelled Moctezuma, wasn't it? It's the same thing, right? How is it spelled? M-O-C-K? C. Yeah. C. Let me just make sure. Moctezuma, also known as Montezuma. Moctezuma the second. All right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Montezuma. All right, Montezuma. So, Montezuma. Or George S. Patton in the Great Depression. Okay. But their corset is way too tight. Ooh. Hmm. I mean, George Patton did live through the Depression. Oh, blood and guts. Yeah, but he's always, I mean, the photos, I mean, he's always wearing some nice loose-fitting slacks. You know, obviously he had his uniform. His shirt was comfortable. I, I think you put him in a corset. He's gonna be he's gonna be disconcerted. Uh and Montezuma, if this is a fight, Montezuma and they don't have guns available. Well, it's well, not like the Great Depression. So he ever had a massive capitalist economy to worry about. So he might be okay. Montezuma? Yeah. Yeah, I mean he's the king. I mean, he's a king of the Aztec Empire, but He's few, also he's also banks It's not going to bother him. Yeah, I'm going to give Montezuma the edge. I think Montezuma is going to do better in this scenario. And if they come to blows, while well, I know Patton was a great general, uh, slapped I, a soldier once. He did slap a soldier, but 
I think if you're the leader of the Aztecs, you got to be pretty ruthless yourself. So I'm, I'm not too worried about a fight between the two. I think Montezuma takes it. Good question, though. I like that one. That one was tighter than I thought it was going to be. Like the corset. Oh, nice. Okay. Mother Teresa. Great. Versus Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed. I don't know who these gals are. Anne, Bonnie. She's a pirate. Oh, so. no, no, no. She was she was in our uh, uh, women in a fight. Well, she she wasn't one of my picks. Was she yours? Send the yours or your Cameron's. Yeah, I think. I think <laughs> so it was I'm Cameron's. Saying, so we're putting Mary, <laughs> Mother Teresa against a pirate, literal pirates. She was captured along with Mary Reed. They were both pirates. One was English, one was Irish. Okay. Well. <laughs> uh, What's the situation that they're in? Riding one of those spiky chariots from Ben-Hur. <clears throat> well, while I would love to see Mother Teresa wreck it in the hippodrome um against a couple of female pirates i feel like and and bonnie and mary reed are going to take this one yeah that's kind of a poor matchup because what is a chariot race but land piracy that's just swashbuckling on land so that yeah, goes to and bonnie. yeah all right so we're gonna go to the tower of london great with do it. all its implements of torture Excellent. Yep. And <laughs> who's it going to be? So, so essentially, here's how I see the setup: the Tower of London. I've been there, and they do have basically it's an arsenal. You know, it's it's a it's a prison, but it's also an arsenal. First, mm-hmm. the French did that. The English did that. Everyone does that. Here's your prison, and put all the weapons next to it or in it, because what could go wrong? Mm-hmm. So these two people are going to have run of the run of the Tower of London. Grab whatever okay. they want. All right. Teddy. Teddy Roosevelt. Versus already... Cleopatra. Ooh, okay. Now, Teddy has a little bit of military background. A skosh. Cleopatra, however, has experience with poisons, or at least venomous items. Yeah. Like, most of the deaths at the Tower of London were not, like, combat deaths. They were executions. Yeah. So that might give her a little bit of an edge. Well, and she also has an edge in bringing down great leaders. So she seduced, she seduced Julius oh, Caesar. Oh, she just might seduce Teddy and then... She might seduce Teddy and then removed. kill him. Yeah. Lay back here and it happens to be a guillotine. Boom. She wins. So, and what there's a this, lot... 
raised stone in the middle of the courtyard for? I don't know. Just lay your head down. <laughs> just lay your head. It's fine. It's fine. So I think she's canny enough. I know it's a bit of a stretch because, you know, physic physically, Teddy would definitely overmatch her, but she's canny enough to to trick Teddy because um, she did that with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and uh, led to Mark Antony's demise herself as well. But yeah, I'm going to I'm going to give a slight edge to Cleopatra here. Very slight, though. There's a boxing match, obviously Teddy, but I just had an instant flashback to uh, Jerry Springer. Mm -hmm. Just imagine there should be a Jerry Springer episode with Cleopatra, Julius and Mark. That'd be a good one. So the next one, all fighters are going to be trapped in medieval stockades. (laughs) Okay. Or medieval stocks. Sorry, stocks. So, yeah. Right? They're chained up. Stocks and pillory. First one is Rosa Parks. Ooh, I don't like the look of this one to begin with. So, (laughs) I don't care for this at all. (laughs) And it's not nearly as funny as it could have been had it been like... any slave-owning president or something, right? But it's Mary Curie. Jeez. So what? what's the outcome of this fight that who can withstand being in Be the, the stocks the longest? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah, I can put up with a lot. I, I mean, I guess. <laughs> I mean, Marie Curie radiated herself to death, which is something. But Rosa Parks was whole thing well not her whole thing but what she's most famous for is quietly refusing to go to the back of the bus and going being arrested for it so i think rosa parks takes the edge on this one okay i mean marie curie is going to die of radiation poisoning while she's in the stocks that's not good marie curie now did she know what was happening at the time uh, I don't think they fully understood what was happening while they were researching the metals, the radio radioactive metals. Because, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rosa Parks was quite aware of what was going to happen. Absolutely, she knew. And, and to the point that Martin Luther King Jr. had actually prevented other people from taking a similar action because he needed the right person to do well, there was a young woman that was doing it that did it before rosa parks and i can't remember her name and she's a very big civil rights activist still to this day i think she's still alive um but she was too young she was like 14 wasn't she age- also pregnant oh i think you're right in the age well maybe she wasn't 14 then, but she was too young and the aclu didn't want her to be the person that made this choice. ACLU, wasn't it the uh, NAACP, right? The NAACP, yeah. And they didn't want her to be the one, so they kind of waited for Rosa Parks to be the one to say, this is what we're gonna make our case on with her. Cause, um, it's... For, so, 
But yeah, regardless, Rosa Parks knew yeah. the consequence of it's, not listening. She knew she was there's almost certainly he's going to go to jail as a result of it. It's not too different. Uh, I remember poof, that was last year that we watched uh, 42 yeah. uh, about Jackie Robinson. And that was a similar situation. The owner of the Dodgers, Dodgers was like, yeah, I'm going to bring someone from one of the Negro leagues up. But it has to be the right person because we can't we have to cover all our bases so that it doesn't blow up in our faces, right? Yeah. So it was this very intentional, calculated move to well, push civil rights. And they well, had specifically to, with Rosa Parks led to the Birmingham bus boycott. That was the that was the catalyst, was the bus boycott. Which lasted almost over a year. The bus boycott lasted over a year. So Rosa Parks refusing to move on the bus. She got arrested. The Birmingham bus boycott started in December of 1955. It ended in December of 1956 when the city of Birmingham um, caved, basically, um, because the buses you know, they were they were losing tons of money. Um, through this boycott so claudette colvin was the other one she was the other person um the the that they didn't went before rosa rosa parks um but sticking to that patience thing that's a that's a year-long campaign and obviously i don't think rosa parks is in jail that whole time but that was a year-long campaign to get action moving forward um for civil rights that's pretty, that's pretty patient. Yeah. So I, I guess I would go with Rosa Parks here. All right. So Good we're going to go to the trenches of World War One. One of my favorite. Who doesn't love it? Get some gangrene. And uh, it would make sense that Joan of Arc would be in her homeland in the trenches. Defending France. I love it. Versus Grigory Rasputin. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, he's from the time period. So Joan of Arc. Both claiming to have God on their side. That's interesting. They're both claiming visions. Both with evidence? Uh, Grigory. Evidence of miracles. Yeah. And he was supposedly healing. The czar's uh, son of his hemo or treating his hemophilia. Um, Rasputin was a big man. He's very tall. Um, he's very charismatic. But apparently, Joan of Arc was also charismatic, and she was actually a soldier. Right? She fought. She correct? fought. She wore armor. Um, she led troops. So I think if you're in an actual wartime situation, even though she is being transported four or 500 years into the future, she's in France, defending France. I think she's going to be able to inspire the soldiers um, better than Rasputin. Rasputin is very, he's like one-on-one, -on -one, he's very charming. He's very persuasive, but I don't know if he's inspired Inspiring. He's not going to lead. He'll inspire fear. Inspire fear. 
but I don't know if he's going to lead men to victory uh, like Joan of Arc did. So I think Joan of Arc wins this one. Now, if it was just a fight. Like I said, if it's just a fight between the two, Rasputin's got the edge. He's much bigger. But I, I think Joan of Arc, being a soldier, being a French hero, uh, and and uh, being charismatic in that regard is going to carry the day. All right. I'm going to add some other modifiers in here for this next one. Um, okay. So we're going to go the 1986 Chicago Bears. Were they the ones okay. who did the shuffle? The No, it was the 85 Bears. This is, they were supposed to go. Okay. So here's what's interesting. The 86 Bears. I think this was the year that they were supposed so they'd won in the 85 season, 86 season. They were still probably the best team in the NFL. Uh, but the Packers during one of the games uh, took, always comes down to the Packers. <laughs> Packers are not a good team in the eighties. They took Jim McMahon, who's the quarterback for the bears. And they basically suplexed him on the sideline and like broke his back. And oh, I should laugh at that, but ruined any chance the bears had of repeating as Super just, Bowl champs. Just the one penalty flag. I don't even know if there was a penalty. Like, <laughs> that's the thing is, and it's like, you look at it and like, clearly the pack is like a lineman. I don't know. He was looking to hurt Jimmy McMahon. And they were just like, all right, all right, come on. Clear, like it was out of bounds. You might say football is too soft today, but player safety is way up. That's way higher than it was in the seventies and eighties. Anyway, that's the 86 Bears, if I'm remembering this correctly. <laughs> what was the video I saw? It was like a CBS promo of, of football in either the 70s or 80s or 60s. And it says, like, literally every shot of this promo a penalty. is a penalty today. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, versus, brutal. we're going to keep it sports, Babe Ruth. So, so the 86 Bears versus Babe Ruth. All right, what are they hold doing? Hold on. But Babe Ruth is actually a witch. And the 1986 Bears are tarred and feathered. Ooh. Who wins? <laughs> He's actually a witch. <laughs> All right. So he can summon dark powers to his aid. And the Bears are tarred and feathered. I've never been tarred and feathered, but it doesn't look comfortable. And it looks like it would be limiting. And being a tar, it's flammable. So if Babe Ruth's a witch, I'm guessing he could cast some sort of spell that would ignite them all. Uh, so in that case, I gotta go, I gotta go with Babe Ruth. I don't think William the Fridge Perry is gonna be able to overcome <coughs> being tarred and feathered and being attacked by the great Bambino, the the, the witch. Yeah, Babe Ruth. Yeah, any counterpoints to that? Sorry, I just had some technical difficulties. Are you good? All right. Well, those those are good. Let's see. What else have we got? Um, Lizzie Borden. Ooh, okay. Versus Julius Caesar. Okay. You know, Lizzie like Borden was like a murderer, right? She killed her parents. Okay. I don't know that story, but this really only affects the one. How did she kill her parents? With an axe. She gave them 40 wax. There's like a whole nursery rhyme about it because we'd like to haunt kids. Um, I mean, 
Yeah. She lets you board and had an ex. She gave her mother 40 wax. Then she went and gave her father 40 more or something like that. It's. I'm not going to use that one because that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But we're going to give them both trench foot. <laughs> so they're in a fight and they both have trench foot. Yeah, their socks are really soaking wet and they're uncomfortable. I know that really downplays trench foot and the fact that it was a bad thing, but. Uh, I'm going to go Caesar, I think on this one general, he would have been able to deal with the deprivations of war, um, better than Lizzie Borden. So yeah, I, I think, I think Caesar's got this one. He was frequently on campaign. He would have understood, if not trench foot, you know, frostbite and other infections and amputations, stuff like that um, in the field. So he would have been able to deal with it had he had it himself. Wait, she was acquitted? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Well, so Julius Caesar. Yeah. Pretty safe, safe bet there. Trench foot is not going to be that big of a. Okay. Whew. Richard the Lionheart versus Hiawatha. And I'm going to, I'm going to go out of order here, but. Man in a Civil War era canon. Um, well, gunpowder didn't, I don't think England had cannons when Richard the Lionheart was king, was he? No. Seems like in the 11, 1200s, right? Right. They had fire. That's about as close. Yeah, 1157 to 1199, but they didn't have cannons yet. Uh, whereas Hiawatha, he's a pre-colonial native leader of the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, but did he ever have any experience Died in 1595. Huh. That's interesting. They both kind of have no knowledge. Only six foot five. Wow. Um, well, I assume this is kind of like a duel. A duel. So they both don't have any knowledge of cannons. So they're kind of on an evil, even field there. Uh, Richard the Lionheart, six foot five. Doesn't really say how big Hiawatha was. Um, but obviously he was a warrior, so he's very strong in that regard. Um, I think Richard the Lionheart here is going to take the edge because even though he didn't have gunpowder for himself, um, he did have siege equipment. Uh, and so I think obviously they're different, but 
I think you'd understand the trajectory and the 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 use of a cannon um, in a way that he could he could translate his knowledge from one to the other. And I don't think the Iroquois Confederacy had any any sort of pre-gunpowder analog that he could have taken and translated over to to a cannon. So I'm going to go with Richard the Lionheart here. He was a uh, Hiawatha was apparently a cannibal though. I don't know how that helps. I mean, it's just a, it's just a fact. It's mm, not just a fun fact. Yeah, fun <laughs> okay. fact: Hiawatha sure. was a cannibal. So we're going to Normandy on D-Day next. Ooh. Tough situation. That's a tough scene. <laughs> okay. Um, Crazy Horse versus Benjamin Franklin. At Normandy, you know, I'm gonna go crazy horse. <laughs> I don't, I like Ben Franklin, he is not a fighter, so I think. Well, crazy you could even say who's gonna survive the invasion. Well, who's gonna survive? And Ben Franklin is on a battleship off the coast writing, so yeah, in that case, yeah, he'll probably survive fine. I, if they're fighting though, I mean, if. If Ben Franklin's in a pillbox and crazy horses storming the beaches with the American, you know, army and British combined forces, that's a little different, but I think crazy horse takes this. He, he was an actual warrior, Uh, but yeah, what's this? Going to 1920s Chicago for the next one. All right. So we got some Al Capone type stuff going on here. (laughs) Okay, Sacagawea or Sacagawea uh-huh. in 1920s Chicago versus pick a Queen Elizabeth. So I get I get my choice. Either one or two. Pick which one you want. First of all, two live through the 20s. So yeah, that's true. Huh. I, I think either Queen Elizabeth would take it here. Like dealing with basically gangs and what is essentially just different kinds of politics. Yeah, I, I definitely think. Like, yeah, I, I like Sacagawea. I think she's great in a lot of circumstances. 1920 Chicago is not one of them. Uh, Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, I mean, much of her early life and early reign was putting away, dealing with threats to her life and to her her reign as queen. Um, queen Elizabeth II had to deal with the abdication of George, I believe. Um, and she's the longest serving queen Britain's ever had. So she's dealt, she's been through a lot. I, I, but I think between those two Elizabeths, yeah, probably Queen Elizabeth II, because she'd be closer to the time period. She, she would win. All right. I like it. I like it. All right. Oh, oh, okay. All right. Buzz Aldrin or King Tut. Okay. And we're going to put them on the Great Wall. I assume of China, not on the southern border of the United States. 
Yeah, I think that one's falling over. So it's not yet completed. It's <laughs> not much of a that, wall. That check from Mexico to clear. Yeah. Uh, King Tut was young when he died. He's like 21. I think he was the son of Akhenaten. Um, very likely killed by the priests, from what I understand. Buzz Aldrin is a world hero. He's still a salty one, too. Buzz Aldrin's spunky. Like <laughs> he's gotta be in his 90s and he's still he's still ready to go. I, I gotta go Buzz Aldrin here. Location Buzz Aldrin. doesn't do anything. I don't think location the man was on the moon. I mean, what location can you put Buzz Aldrin in that's well, more guess, disconcerting than the moon? He's seen the Great Wall from space, then, right? That's the rumor. Yeah. Put him to, all right. So he's got a scouting report on it. <laughs> yeah, he's, he right. knows how walls work. Oh. Well, Harry Houdini. Master of Escape. Or Martin Luther King Jr. Interesting. And I'm trying to, I don't like that question. Uh, I don't like any of those. We're going to put them at Woodstock. <laughs> okay. So who, who wins? Who wins at Woodstock? This is really interesting because Harry Houdini, master of illusion, great escape artist, considered by some one of the greatest magicians of all time. Um, so guy knows how to put on a show. Is what I'm saying. But Martin Luther King Jr. gave quite possibly the greatest speech of all time, at least in American history. Um, with the I have a dream speech at the Washington Memorial at the National Mall. So I think Martin Luther King Jr. takes this one. Um he was alive in the 60s, so it would have been more of his time period. So they would have known who he was. Um, whereas Houdini, he would have been out of time. I don't know if he would have understood what all these hippies are doing and all this free love stuff. So I think Martin Luther King takes this. He would give a speech that would knock the socks off those people in Woodstock. I like it. Okay. I like that. So you say you say that's the greatest speech of all time or American history? Which... I, I said all time, but then I tamped it back down to American history because. So what get... are the what are the greatest speeches in American history? I have a dream. I have a dream is up there. Probably Gettysburg Address is up there. Um, say Kennedy's. You know, we choose to do these and the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, Anything by Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> yeah, the, all of the numerous speeches he gave. <laughs> um, I would say A Date Which Lives in Infamy is a great speech by Roosevelt. 
Um, others would say we have nothing to fear but fear itself. I think that was his inauguration. FDRs, yeah. Yeah. Those are some great ones. It's interesting because Washington wasn't known for his public speaking. No. But his farewell address. His farewell address was great. It was pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, and I think there's something about a lot of these speeches that up until Lincoln, they're not remembered as, they're not remembered verbatim, Mm -hmm. right? Because Gettysburg Address, we're able to, we have the full copy, right? Mm -hmm. And then in the 20th century, we have the opportunity to have them recorded so we can Mm -hmm. hear them over and over again. And not just hear them, or not just read them, but hear them in the voice in which they were spoken, which is part of the power of a lot of these speeches. Yeah. Kind of like Winston Churchill's uh, nothing but blood, sweat, toil, and tears. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, fight them on the beaches, fight them in the land, fight them in the air. Like, but when you listen to him say it, it's so much more powerful. Yeah, it's a great point. Infamy, because you can hear it. Mm -hmm. Right. So. I'd say the fact that the Gettysburg Address is so well-remembered, even though we don't have a recording of it, the actual speech. That's actually... Well, and if I understand, it wasn't really that well-received when he gave it. Like, they were kind of like, there wasn't such a great speech. And I don't think Lincoln was like super proud of it after he he gave it. he wasn't the headliner either. Yeah. There was someone else who was supposed to give like... The bigger speech but then it later on yeah. it became popularized and became known as one of the greatest speeches of american history but it wasn't that well received initially yeah. um and i was just thinking as like thinking about other speeches in the world i was like you know julius caesar's friends romans and countrymen I'm like but that's actually Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm like written some amazing speeches. Shakespeare has written some great speeches for historical people. And I'm like, oh is yeah. It, is it Richard the Third? Like, and you today who sheds his blood with me shall forever be called my brother. Is it Richard the fourth or fifth? Once more into the breach. Henry the Fifth. Yeah, Henry the yeah, Fifth. And once more into the breach. Speech. Incredible speech. Was it by Henry the Fifth? <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh yeah. Shakespeare, those, man. Yeah, some of those are like non-historical speeches. Or um, King Theoden's speech at the Battle of Pelennor Fields. Oh, it's and a, just, and a red sun rises. Amazing. But, you know, as far as we know, not historical. So what are the greatest speeches in non-history? That's really what you wanted the to. Greatest <laughs> fictional speeches. Yeah. Oh, there's some good ones. Mm-hmm. Well, but then you got to go well, Independence Day. Is it a speech or is it like a monologue? Because monologues don't count. Mm-hmm. It's got to be a speech. So King Theoden is up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Independence one. Eh. Yeah, I mean it. It's good. It was but good. All right. Not, well, okay. Not, here's another great, great speech. Um, well, is it a speech or was it a letter? Eisenhower on the eve of D-Day. Speaking of D-Day. Oh, that's the letter. That was a great letter. Such a great letter. So anyway, 
So I guess those would be, you know, Gettysburg Address, uh, Washington's Farewell Address, um, A Date with Jude Living Infamy, Kennedy's Speech. Those are all really great speeches. I think American History, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speeches, probably 1A or 1B. Um, it's right up there. Ronald Reagan's oh. Tear Down This Wall. That was a good one. That was pretty good. I think here's an interesting point is Obama has given many great speeches. Um, I think his best speech was when he was doing the 2004 DNC um, where we don't have a red America or a blue America, you know, and he said, we worship a mighty God in the blue America, you know, and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But that was for John Kerry's nomination but it was probably the best speech Obama ever gave because it's what catapulted him to yeah. the presidency in 2008. He was, well, he was a senator from Illinois at the time, right? I think he was a state senator. He wasn't even... Still just a state senator. I don't think he was the U.S. senator until 2006, <laughs> but they knew he was he was the guy. Anyway. That's wild. Yeah. So one last question before we wrap it up. Sure. Uh, we were doing the TikTok live beforehand mm -hmm. and someone asked, what's the best history movie and that really stumped me because i you know there's a lot of movies that i really enjoy that have kind of pulled me into history uh -huh. you have to take into account accuracy you've got to take into account that it's actually a good film and well made that it has an impact and i that's tricky because I loved Braveheart, but that is so full of historical inaccuracies. But it's still so good. Yeah, Braveheart's a great movie, but it's almost like a historical drama or soap opera. Like there's they they take a lot of liberties with that movie. It's still a great movie. Um you know, I right now, and this is first blush. I'm singing, I'm hearing like Gladiator or Saving Private Ryan popped yeah. into my head right Gladiator. away. Yeah. Saving Private Ryan is, I had a student who the other day was like, Saving Private Ryan wasn't that good. And I just had to move on. I couldn't, I wasn't going to give them that time. Yeah. The Gladiator, I remember seeing that. And uh, Susan Mobley, I remember. Yeah. mention it and she rolled her eyes susan mobley was probably still is history professor at the college we went to mm -hmm. rolled her eyes and was like yeah that's not how the romans fought at all yeah like she was just like no <laughs> yeah no she was she was detail oriented to say the least it was such a great movie anyway it was uh, it was those it was um those pop up right away. <laughs> Another historical movie, not very accurate. Dances with Wolves is a very good historical movie. Um, and I think you just kind of got to suspend disbelief on a lot of historical movies. I feel like, you know, Gettysburg. Gettysburg was, that was a good one. Almost to a fault. Because it was... It, it ended up, what is it, three and a half hours long, four hours long. Yeah. 
And, you know, kind of had to be if you're going to tell the whole story of Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. And they tell all the major points. Um, Saving Private Ryan would be up there. Saving Private Ryan's up there. Um, das Boot, Enemy at the Gate. Oh um, those are two good historical movies. And I think what you need to, not you, Eric, but when, when somebody's watching a historical movie is if they get stuck nitpicking, if is it, is it accurate or not? It's like, I don't think, and I, I think a lot of this, these historical movies aren't trying to say this is how exactly this was. Although Saving Private Ryan was really good with their depictions of battle but they're like this is a story and this gives you a feel for what this event was like mm-hmm. you know or what this culture was like oh my gosh all's quiet on the western front oh yeah How we forget that one that's another i mean there's great. a ton and I, and I think like the great escape is one of my favorite <laughs> movies of all time yeah and it's an adapt adaptation from an actual event obviously mm-hmm. tons of names are changed you get the idea of what this was like. And when you mentioned uh, Saving Private Ryan and how this is what battle was like, that's where I have to say Fury. Fury. Historically, it's, it's, it's very, um, I guess, kind of vague. Mm-hmm. They don't specify where this is taking place. You know it's in Europe. You know they're fighting the Germans, but you don't know where they are. Yeah. Because that's not the point. The point is here's a tank crew. Here's what it may have been like for a tank crew. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is a movie that takes the intensity of saving private Ryan to a whole new level. Um, I think Dunkirk and 1917 mm-hmm. more, more recent films definitely kind of set a, a new standard for, how to really immerse your audience in the intensity of the moment of combat. Yeah. Or not even combat because Dunkirk, most of it is not combat. It's well, and it doesn't have to even be like we've said a lot of war movies, but 42 is a historical movie. Yeah. Right. Like it's a, it's a historical movie. It's a very, very good one. Like we need to stop. You know, thinking well, just there's a lot of great movies that are biographies or historical movies. Um, I didn't watch Lincoln, um, but I heard it was a very good. It was interesting movie. Um, So I I think you can look beyond the scope. War is easy to go to because those are big events, and it's easy to tell good stories with that. But you know, Forty Two is a seminal movement in American history. You could go to something like it wasn't a movie at first, but Hamilton. is technically a movie now because it was released yeah like that blew open the doors that saved the ten dollar bill like the ten dollar bill there's a campaign to get rid of them was on the chopping block to well the campaign was to save them because they were going to change that and then they went to 20 and they're like sorry jackson time's up yeah um but you know not 100% 100% accurate. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's a musical. But man, it opened the story up to help people realize who Alexander Hamilton was. Yeah. What role he played, what major role he played in the formation of the, the US federal government 
and then it's it's early years, as well as a system of credit that helped us survive past the first few years. Sure. Like that's a historical film, I guess, sorts. Yeah, absolutely is. And it's just uh I was just thinking as you were talking, uh again, not super historically accurate, but um the Untouchables is <laughs> a good historical movie mm-hmm. um, with Costner, Sean Connery, um, obviously dealing with Al Capone. Um, yeah, Eight Men Out. Eight Men Out. Yeah. <clears throat> so all that to say, I don't have a favorite, I guess, because there's a lot of great ones that I can't. It's hard to say what the best one. I mean, I guess I'll stick with my initial t- uh, probably Saving Private Ryan or Gladiator probably were the two most influential historical movies in my life but there's a lot of great historical movies out there um that you can pick from yeah it's a great way to end though that's a great last yeah. question yeah all right well um, yeah. that's all we got so thank you so much for joining us uh that's uh That's the end of our broadcast for tonight, and we'll see you all next week. Hope you all have a great day in history. Good night.